Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Kichimigwich to Karen from Anemkiwaju for helping with this episode. Today we're going back to the early 21st century. In the year 1909, gold was discovered at Porcupine Lake, Ontario, near a small city called Timmins. The gold discovered at Porcupine Lake began a gold rush. Gold production peaked there in the 1940s and 1950s, but still continues. Porcupine Lake is located within Ontario, as well as within Treaty 9 territory. Two other small cities, Sudbury and North Bay, which are both within the borders of the province of Ontario, but are also both within the geographic boundaries of the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850, are also near the Porcupine Lake Gold Rush area. There are multiple treaties within the boundaries of the province of Ontario. What this means is that the Porcupine Gold Rush occurred on Anishinaabe Treaty land, whether it is Treaty 9 or Robinson-Huron 1850. As part of the treaty land sessions made by the Ojikri people of that region to Canada, Canada was to provide reciprocal annuity payments to each native person. Back in 1850, the price of each payment was $4. In the 170 or so years since the signing of the treaty, those payments have not increased, although the land itself has produced much wealth. Indeed, the Porcupine Lake area has produced over 67 million troy ounces of gold. The gold deposits in the Porcupine area have produced more gold since first being mined than the Klondike has. This gold extraction, while good for non-native workers and investors, had the opposite effect on native people. This is because as prospectors came to the area from elsewhere, the indigenous people were displaced and dispossessed of their land. As signatories to Treaty 9, the indigenous people had to live on reserves. Thus, the way was open for non-native, that is, white, people to enter the area via the railroad that was put down by the government of Ontario. This not only happened with gold and silver, but also with water and agricultural land. For example, Let's look at what happened with water resource extraction at an Indian reservation elsewhere in Ontario, but in that same year, 1909. In northwestern Ontario, water was first received in the town of Fort William, Thunder Bay, from the Loch Lomond Venture. Loch Lomond is a lake that is within First Nation territory, but the water was rerouted to be used by non-native newcomers. It is important to remember that this venture was implemented at a time when native people weren't allowed to fully participate in Canadian society. What do I mean by not allowed to fully participate? For one thing, native people weren't enfranchised to vote until 1960. What this means is that for the Loch Lomond venture, the local native people would not have had an official say as to whether or not the water from the lake was to be diverted from the lake through the reserve and then to the town a few kilometers away. Geographically, the First Nation, which is now called Fort William First Nation, is between the lake and the town to which the water was diverted. As signatories to a treaty, the people of Fort William First Nation had to be good Indians, 
or face consequences, most likely a more stringent geoeconomic straitjacket. There have always been people living in this area. Since long before the first Europeans arrived, there have been native people living here. The Kaministiqua River was an important waterway since time immemorial and through the fur trade era. Lake Superior, which is Kichigami in Ojibwe, is still a hub in the 21st century for the North American interior to the rest of the world via the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence River. Water for the city of Thunder Bay no longer comes from Loch Lomond. Water for Thunder Bay and Fort William First Nation now come from Lake Superior through the same water treatment plant. Yes, there has been progress in the last hundred years. Also in 1909, the Boundary Waters Treaty was signed between Canada and the United States. The treaty was signed to prevent and solve disputes regarding water use along their shared border. The Boundary Waters Treaty prohibited the diversion of water without the approval of the International Joint Commission. Was Fort William First Nation included in the Boundary Waters Treaty or in the International Joint Commission? Was the International Joint Commission asked for approval to divert water from Loch Lomond through Fort William First Nation to Thunder Bay? I doubt it. Nineteen oh nine was also the year that adhesions were made to Treaty Number Five, which is west of the treaty area that Fort William First Nation is a signatory to. Fort William First Nation is a signatory of the Robinson Superior eighteen fifty treaty. In eighteen fifty three, the Indian Reservation, now known as Fort William First Nation, was officially created. In other words, these Indians got entered into the government records. Fort William First Nation is also known as Indian Reservation Number 187. There are over 600 of such Indian reservations across Canada. In more modern times, Indian reservations updated their names to reflect their own identities. For instance, Indian Reserve Number 233 is actually Wagojik First Nation. North Caribou Lake is Indian Reserve Number 204. It is about 500 kilometers north of Fort William First Nation. That is where my mom's family is from. This means that I belong to Treaty Number 9. That treaty was first signed in 1905. But the reservation where my mom is from, which is Indian Reservation Number 204, did not sign Treaty Number 9 until 1930. Remember, these treaty signings occurred decades before native people were enfranchised to vote in Canada. This means they weren't allowed to vote in Canadian politics. We Aboriginals in Canada didn't receive that right until 1960. Westwards of Treaty 9 territory is Treaty 6 territory, 
Treaty 6 territory is in what is now the province of Saskatchewan. Treaty 6 was signed in 1876. Years after the treaty was signed, thousands of acres of land was coercively surrendered to the government of Canada. The government then sold that land to non-Aboriginal farmers. Specifically, I'm talking about Indian Reserve number 112. It is also known as Musaman. The word Musaman translates into English as moose food, meaning that this area was abundant in moose. Moose has long been a staple food in the Anishinaabe people's diet. Thunder Child is a nearby Indian reservation that underwent the same geopolitical complications as Musaman. For instance, one problem with the land surrender and sale was that neither was in the best interests of the First Nations people themselves. As signatories to Treaty No. 6, the native people had agreed to give up certain rights to gain new rights as Canadians. Remember, natives on Turtle Island had, by this point, 1876, been under threat of genocide for at least half a century. That's counting from the beginning of the Trail of Tears. A second problem with the land surrender in 1909 was the relocation of the people of Musaman from fertile land to less ideal land. The First Nation had basically been gentrified out of their traditional hunting territory and successful agricultural lands onto less fertile land. The people of the First Nations had been successfully transitioning from their traditional subsistence modalities towards the European farming modality and the incoming settlers wanted that success for themselves. The relocation had been a collective effort by not only government authorities but local Canadian citizens, that is, non-native people to have the Musaman and Thunderchild Reserves moved elsewhere. There was so much haranguing by local government, farmers, clergy and so on, that the people of Musaman eventually agreed to the relocation. This is why when I see bumper stickers that say, Farmers Feed Cities, or when I see a McDonald's ad that states, Not Without Canadian Farmers, I simply think, Not Without Stolen Land. And I'm telling the truth, because a $41 million legal settlement was reached between Musaman First Nation and Canada in the fall of 2003. The negotiations had begun in 1986 and took 16 years to complete. What had been discovered by the Indian Claims Commission in 1996 was that, quote, 1. Canada breached its fiduciary obligations in securing the surrender of Indian Reserves 112 and 112A because the Crown failed to respect the band's decision-making autonomy and, instead, engaged in tainted dealings by taking advantage of its position of authority and by unduly influencing the band to surrender its land. 2. The band's decision-making autonomy was ceded for it by the overwhelming power and influence exercised by Crown officials seeking to obtain the desired surrenders. And 3. The Governor in Council gave its consent under Section 49.4 of the Indian Act 
to a surrender that was foolish, improvident, and exploitative, both in the process and in the end result. End quote. That is what I mean by stolen land. In modern times, since about 2008, corporations wanting to do business on First Nation territories have the legal responsibility to consult with the First Nation treaty landholder. This is referred to as the duty to consult with First Nations. The duty to consult is a constitutionally protected right. I'll read from a document published by Fort William First Nation regarding this topic. It says, quote, the legal duty to consult and accommodate with Aboriginal peoples in Canada arises when the Crown contemplates actions or decisions that may adversely impact an Aboriginal person's constitutionally protected treaty rights. Obtaining the prior and informed consent of Aboriginal people before proceeding with economic development projects arises most often in the context of natural resource extraction such as mining, forestry, oil, and gas, when Crown land decisions may adversely impact First Nations treaty rights. Activities include impact benefit agreements in mapping traditional land to full equity partnerships on multi-million dollar projects. While the duty to consult ultimately lies with the federal or provincial Crown, the Supreme Court of Canada has stated that a Crown can delegate some matters of consultation to private parties such as industry stakeholders." End quote. This law is in place to prevent the theft of resources. The water from Loch Lomond mentioned earlier is an example of resource theft. It wasn't just water that was stolen. I've mentioned too the coerced relocation of Indian reservations for their land. Trees, fish, lobsters, real estate, gold, silver, and even water are included within our hunting and harvesting rights, and all have been improperly or outright illegally taken away from First Nations people and territories for many generations. The resource theft, which led to huge economic gaps between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians, is one of the very foundations of Canada, and indeed, all of North America. That's why many modern cities are built upon or near to already existing Aboriginal communities. Thunder Bay is an example. Regina, Saskatchewan is another example. The duty to consult is not a perfect system, but it's what is currently in use in Canada. In the long run, it actually saves a lot of time and money. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast. <laughs>